Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, today's message is going to be called Too Small and Great. Too Small and Great. Well, I'm Eric Newcomer and we're here to study the Word of God together. Today we'll be in Acts chapter 25. We're going to look at the last half of that chapter and the first verse of chapter 26. And where we come to in the narrative is, is simply this. Paul went to Jerusalem and got in trouble just like he knew he would, just like his Christian friends warned him he would. But nevertheless, he went anyway, and every indication is that it was the will of God to propel him there, for him to be faithful, to bring a gift to the church there in Jerusalem, and to connect with them, and to, to really help build the bridge between himself and the Jewish believers. And as we saw these things unfold, nevertheless, he gets falsely accused in the temple by some of the... Uh, people from Asia, some of the Jews from Asia, maybe from Ephesus, and they, uh, in the confusion and everything, Paul gets arrested, which probably saved his life, and then there's a plot found against his life, so they transport him from Jerusalem to the coastal city of Caesarea Maritima, where the seat of the Roman governor was, the governor of Judea. So he uh, spent about two years there being neglected by Felix. And Felix then was recalled by the new emperor, Nero, and a uh, new leader put in his place, a man no named uh, Porcius Festus. And so Festus, as we'll call him, uh, is left in a bit of a problem. See, as soon as he came, he goes to Jerusalem, and the leaders bring up Paul. They want to bring Paul and try him in Jerusalem. And Festus is like, no, he's down there in Caesarea, where I'm going, why don't you come with me and we'll bring him out and, and we'll take care of this. And so in his interest to get things solved, to get things moving along, the very next day after he arrived back in Caesarea with the Jewish leaders, they brought forth Paul and they examined him. And in that examination, Festus asked Paul, would you want to go to Jerusalem to answer these charges? And Paul basically says, no, I'm in Caesar's court. There's no better place. And more than that, you know, I didn't do anything deserving of conviction by these men. And so he appealed to Caesar, which was the right of a Roman citizen uh, to a, as a, a citizen of the city of Rome to be go uh, to, to go to Rome and be heard by Caesar's own officials. And so this was a right of a citizen. Now, they better have a good case if they're going to do this. But nevertheless, Paul appeals to Rome. And because of that appeal, he must go to Rome. And so Festus now has a problem on his hands. He has this prisoner that is going to Caesar's court in Rome. And he doesn't have anything good to write up about what he did. Why is it he's there? And it would not be wise for a leader to send a prisoner to the court in Rome without some clear charges against him. And so here's where we pick up the story in chapter 25, verse 13. And what we want to learn today is very simply this, because Paul ends up with an incredible opportunity right in front of him to bear witness to these leaders and all the people around them uh, in this place. And this is a great opportunity that he would not have otherwise had had he not been in their custody. And so we see that all throughout the Christian life that God works circumstances to bring his people into every conceivable situation to preach the gospel both to the small and to the great. 
And so that's what I've called today's sermons based on a verse that we'll see in chapter 26. But for now, let's go to the scriptures. Let's read starting in chapter 25, verse 13. Here's what it says there. It says, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So Festus has some visitors. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, and a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Morrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had not done that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have my permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Well, let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much. And as we open up these scriptures and look at these, Lord, uh, we want us to be open to what you would instruct us, to how we would understand these things. And more importantly, how we might apply them to ourselves and follow the example of your servant, Paul. I pray this day you'll be with us, you'll strengthen us, you'll guide us by your spirit to understand and to apply and to share what we have learned. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here you have an interesting situation. Um, And as I began to study this passage, I was originally had in my had the notion, I'll, I'll go to 26, 25 is not that important. I'll go right to 26, just explain the background of 25, and then it go dive right into what Paul says and Paul's defense. But then I found in a narrative section and some of the things said by Festus and the others, and particularly the scene that's been set, to be really important. And the uh, title of the sermon is based upon a phrase Paul says later in chapter 26. 
He says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And so it's that that phrase there that really intrigued me, both to small and great. And as I began to consider the scene that Paul is in, this phrase stood out because I understood this really is a unique situation. This really is uh, a unique setting that Paul finds himself in. And this alone is worthy of us to take a close look at before we go diving into the details of what Paul had to share that day. So first of all, I want to explain the position that Paul was in. The position that Paul was in here based on uh, verse 23. When Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, because <laughs> after all this was the king of Judea, so he is the the Jewish side of ruling the area, Festus being the Roman side of ruling the area, which of course was the trump card. And these two together were charged with ruling this area uh, under Rome. And so he comes with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes. Okay, those would be uh, important people and the prominent men of the city, more important people. So always important people. Let's talk a little bit about these in turn here. And, uh, and want to show you the importance of what we see happening. First of all, Festus. We talked more about him last time. If you want to know more, you can go back. Truth is, we don't know a whole lot. We have what's here in Luke. We have a little bit from the historian, uh, the Jewish historian known as Josephus. And we do know that he was a little better of a ruler than his predecessor, Felix. That he was, uh, of course, the highest ranking person in in Judea, uh, which was a border province, a border of the Roman Empire. In other words, this was on the edge, and it was very important that this place be led and kept stable. And so he's put there to do that because Felix himself was a bit of a stable, destabilizing influence. In fact, they never really overcame the damage that Felix had done when he was in power. And the Jewish War of, or of AD 66 to about 70, resulting in the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, is really laid at his feet as him being responsible and having, having caused the great and deep dissension and everything that eventually led to that war. But nevertheless, here we are, Festus, more competent, proactive in what he was doing, uh, seems to be a real empire guy, but also seems to be sensible and well-balanced about how to handle the locals. Uh, here we have also then King Agrippa, and this would be Agrippa II, as he's known to us today. He is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great, as you know, was a very well-connected, well-established ruler, a very violent man. He's the one that sent the soldiers to uh, kill the children in Bethlehem, trying to cut off this supposed Messiah that was coming, which was Jesus. Herod the Great uh, died a few years after that, and his various uh, descendants uh, ruled various parts of his former territory. And Agrippa II, a great-grandson, at this time is over Judea, and he's given charge over Jerusalem and the temple. And so this is a very logical man to consult on the issue because he was an expert on Jewish religion, Jewish politics. He knew how to deal with them and with the leaders in Jerusalem and everything else. So Agrippa is the perfect person for Festus to consult about this. He was very well connected. 
and it came from this long dynasty that had been ruling in the area. And so this is a very influential person in Agrippa. Next is Agrippa's Bernice. Well, she is the sister of Agrippa and uh, always with him. So the rumor was, <clears throat> and probably based on truth, that this was an inappropriate relationship that they had. And so you have uh, these two, and then the next one that you have on the list are some others that you should be aware of, as mentioned there in verse 23. Uh, let's take a look at who's there. There's military tribunes there. These would be the officers that were in charge of the various military branches that were present there at Caesarea Maritima and served the governor over the whole province of Judea. And then we have uh, with them some prominent men of the city. And these prominent men of the city would include uh, the wealthiest and most influential people of Caesarea Maritima. And they are people that would be regularly interfacing with Agrippa and with Festus in the affairs of the city and the important things concerning the trade of the city and security and other matters. But then implied and not necessarily mentioned in verse 23 are the others that would definitely be in attendance that day. These would include your regular ranking soldiers. These would be regular people charged with the security of the court. They would stand at the doorways. They would make sure everything was stable and, and calm. And with them also, with each of these people, the prominent men of the city, the tribunes that came, Agrippa and Bernice, all these people would have had their own servants, their own staff with them. And so there's a great number of other people who don't rank as highly as kings, but are nevertheless present for what Paul is going to say. So there's a great number of people, at the very minimum dozens, at the maximum perhaps uh, you know close to a hundred people in this hall at the coming of Paul. Now I do want to emphasize they weren't all there for Paul. Agrippa and Bernice are visiting Festus, it says, for several days. And so this would probably be a scheduled type of court that they're going to have. And as we would do it in the modern day, we'd call it a photo op where heads of state meet together. Remember, Festus is brand new on the job and these people are going to meet together and they're going to be seen, as it were, shaking hands and speaking and, and talking about things. And they're going to have all these other important people around them to witness this. And it is a very much a political thing. And they would have done it with or without Paul. But they say, oh, this is the occasion. Let's bring Paul out while we're having this fancy thing and see indeed what it is we can do with him. And so all these people are there to witness this. And this is the position that Paul finds himself in. He stood there, as he said, indeed, before great and small and before small and great however you want to do it. well let's talk about the precedent that this sets here because this is important and this is something uh, profound to see prophets have very often been sent by god to both the small and the great when you go into the old testament you start seeing prophets uh, other than moses and joshua you start seeing other prophets pop up in the times of the kings 
and where someone like Nathan is sent to David to help him and to prophesy to him and, and speak for God uh, in his presence. And then you have Elijah and Elisha, they minister to the northern kingdom. You have then writing prophets start to surface and come around. Hosea, Joel Amos, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, people like that that are coming. Some of them come to the kings. Some of them go to the common people. Some of them uh, mostly have a preaching kind of thing that someone happened to write down. Some of them specifically wrote things to be sent to other nations or sent to the leaders or sent and read to the common people. There's a great variety of prophets that come in the Old Testament, and this indeed was the Apostles' Bible, the Old Testament. And remember the, the account of Jonah, who was sent to Nineveh. You know, he's sent actually to a foreign land, and he goes through the entire city preaching. So he preached both too small and great, because ultimately he was brought before the king with his message, and it's the king who says, you know what, we better listen to this guy. And the city repented, and indeed destruction was delayed for Nineveh because of it. So this ministry of the prophet to come and speak to leader, to small and to great, to Jew and Gentile, this is something that is all through the Old Testament. And these uh, writings, very often, and the prophets were sent to foreign nations, not just Israel, but foreign nations in addition to Israel. Israel, through the Old Testament, was God's chosen people, but the world was always the goal. Let me show you, when the nation Israel really formed was when God chose Abram. Out of all the nations, uh, the languages were confused at the Tower of Babel, of all the people coming out of that, he chooses one guy and he says, I'm going to make you a nation. Look what he says in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. You see that? All families of the earth. That word is sometimes translated as families, sometimes as nations. Same word. And the intent of God was always the whole world. He was starting with one man. He was going to work his word through this one nation. He was going to bring Jesus, God incarnate, through this one nation. But nevertheless, the goal was always all the nations. And when we go from there, we can see this attitude of God concerning all the nations continues. He occasionally goes back to it. And in fact, Part of his charges against the nation Israel when they were unfaithful to him is you've blasphemed my name among Gentiles. In other words, you made me look bad in front of the other nations. And so this was his plan from the beginning. Look at Psalm 66 and what it says here. Shout for joy, joy to God all the earth. Most of the Psalms are are Israelite-centered. In other words, it's about God and his promised people and what he's done for them. And even this psalm contains some of that, but this psalm is clearly addressed to all peoples. And it gets more obvious as it goes on. In verse 2, sing the glory of his name, give him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you, 
They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. That's specifically Israel. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, who, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. In other words, you know, the Lord keeps his eyes on all the nations. And look what it says here. Bless our God, all peoples. You know, that's appealing to all the nations. Let the sound of his praise be heard. And so God has a constant concern for all the nations. It wasn't just about Israel. It was to go global. And look at this in Isaiah 42.6 as he's preaching through his prophet Isaiah uh, to the people. He says, I am the Lord, I have called you, that is the nation Israel, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Well, this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The New Testament attributes this light for the nations or light for the Gentiles phrase to Jesus himself, who of course is the ultimate fulfillment of all that Israel was intended to be. He has been called as a light for the nations, and indeed, that is then transferred to his people who bring the gospel. And so, this is the precedent that's been set by the Old Testament. We see all through it that these prophets speak where and when God tells them to speak and are not inhibited by the situation or by the people they face. And so, that is indeed the position that we find Paul in and the... Uh, the, the powerful stuff that we see coming out of it. Let's take a look at more. First of all, I want to talk about some very specific predictions that this is how it would be with the church in the New Testament. And we go to Acts chapter 9, verse 15 specifically, because when God interrupted Paul's life on his road to Damascus, which we're going to count in detail in the next chapter, he said this to Ananias, who was another Christian, that God spoke to, that God ultimately sent to Paul to restore his sight to him and to tell him more about what God had in store for him. So look what he says to Ananias concerning Paul. He says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so here's Paul literally before all these Gentiles and kings. And it's a profound thing that he is fulfilling this here in the book of Acts just a few years later. Now, the church generally has a prediction like this. It's a command followed by a prediction of Jesus. He says to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is an emphatic way of saying all that has been made and meaning, of course, all the people. Don't leave any of them out. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and that's a future indicative. In other words, Jesus is predicting this. But whoever does not believe will be condemned, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not help them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And we find most of these things fulfilled right here in the book of Acts. And so it's a powerfully important thing to see. This is what Jesus expected the church to do, that they would take it to everyone, all of creation. That means great and small. That means Jew and Gentile. That means 
black and white and everything in between and everything outside and everything upside down. It is every single human being that the gospel is intended for with no uh, partiality on the part of the church. But there's more. If we go back to the Old Testament, what Jesus came preaching at the first and what John the Baptist preached at the first and what the apostles preached was the kingdom has come. In other words, that, that, that God is now establishing his kingdom upon the earth. And when we hear that language, we're drawn to Daniel chapter 7 because in Daniel is a prediction of kingdoms, a succession of kingdoms that ultimately lead to this fifth kingdom that Daniel prophesies about. The first four we know is Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But then this next kingdom that comes, presumably during the time of Rome, is the kingdom of God. And listen to it as the Christ is seen here in Daniel chapter 7. And it describes him this way. To him, that is to Jesus Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. You see the emphasis there on peoples, nations, and languages. They're all going to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, this phrase, all peoples, nations, and languages, becomes almost a refrain in the book of Revelation. It's found in chapter 5, it's found in chapter 7, as a way of describing this church that Christ has built is of all these different languages and all these different peoples. And listen to what it says about the New Jerusalem uh, that we hear described there in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. It says, by its light, by what light? By the light of the Lamb. See, the glory of God gives this, this new city light. There's no need of sun or moon. Its lamp is the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And so this is a, the coming kingdom when it is fully consummated, as we see at the end of the book of Revelation, is going to include peoples from all nations. So this is the mandate of the church. This is the prediction of the church. And it is the prerogative of the church. It's so important we understand this is the prerogative of the church to do precisely what Paul is doing. Because I want you to consider the scene that Paul is in. He is called in before these very important people. These people that could hold his life in their hands. And, and they could enact some form of injustice on him and find some excuse for finding him guilty of something and putting Paul to death if they wanted to. And so these are important and influential people. And Paul comes before them to answer uh, charges brought by the Jews from Jerusalem. And the question is then, what's he going to say? Well, Paul goes in there, as we'll see next time, and preaches the gospel. He tells all about his testimony and how he encountered the Lord on the, on the road to Damascus and was struck blind and, and then he was cured of that and then he saw, you know, and he had seen the risen Christ and, and he talks about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and this all sounds very much like the gospel because it is. And what does that have to do with the charges brought against him? How is that his defense? Well, logically, it's his defense because he's explaining why he does what he does. And he's also explaining why the Jews have a problem with it. 
But to explain it in the way that he did, some would look at that and say, that's a bit audacious. That's a bit presumptive of Paul to go in there and do this this way. And I say, no, Paul was well within his rights. In fact, it was the right thing for him to do under God to do so. Look at the new covenant described in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 31, starting in verse 31, the, the Lord says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now listen to this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Did you notice that? From the least of them to the greatest, they'll all know me. And so the gospel, this new covenant is to be offered to everyone from the least to the greatest. And you might read that passage and go, yeah, but that's a new covenant with Israel. Well, we understand very clearly from the time of Jesus and from the gospels all the way through the New Testament that this new covenant was going beyond the bounds of Israel and going to encompass all the nations, all the Gentiles. And this is the command of Jesus. Look in Matthew chapter 28. Just before he ascended to heaven, he reiterated this command to his disciples. And he says, first of all, prefacing it with the authority with which we go. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This may sound like a ceremony, the way Jesus puts this. This may sound like he's deputizing these men. And indeed, he is. And he's commanding these men to go, therefore, and make disciples by his own authority. By the authority of Jesus, disciples go and make disciples. And it is the authority in which is all of heaven and earth. There is no higher authority than the authority of Jesus Christ. For the, the scriptures have said, all things are to be put in subjection under his feet. He is the supreme ruler and he is going to collect into himself the kingdom. He is going to take over all of the nations in this way by converting them to Christianity and then coming back and having a final judgment and a great sorting out of all of humanity. And then his kingdom then will be handed over to the Father and it will be an eternal kingdom of all believers of all times. And so he gives this great deputizing, this great authority to his disciples to go and make disciples. And there's a couple things we learn from what we're seeing here in the scriptures and in Paul's situation. It's, number one is this, that believers move the gospel forward. 
and I'll put this up here for you. Believers move the gospel forward to all nations with all authority in heaven and on earth. So to answer the question, who is this Paul who's going to go in here and answer these questions with the gospel? Paul brings forth his own agenda rather than really serving theirs. Who is he to do that? Well, it's right there. All authority in heaven and on earth to do that. You have the right to do that. Could you find yourself in the, in a circle of the greatest leaders on planet earth, the most influential and most, most famous people, the wealthiest people, the greatest people from a human perspective, you as a believer in Jesus Christ have all the right to preach the gospel in that situation, just as Paul did, to give your own personal testimony, because you represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You have been commissioned with all authority in heaven and on earth to go and make disciples. And so there is no authority that can stop you. Early in the book of Acts, we saw Peter and John were challenged by the leaders, the same people who crucified Jesus. Hey, what are you doing? You've got to stop preaching like this. You've got to stop doing this stuff. And they say, should we obey you or God? And that was exactly the answer. Should we obey you or God? Well, obviously the answer is they should obey God. They should not fear men more than they fear God. We preach the gospel also then to small and great, making no distinctions and showing no partiality. And you can look at these statements and the situation, you can understand this, that here on earth, we are issued passports in order to travel. And the passports show the authority of the, the nation of whom that person is a citizen. If you're a citizen of the United States, you have a passport, it says, you know, citizen of the United States and has all your information on there and everywhere you go gets a stamp, okay? Believers have a passport, as it were, a spiritual passport that is from, that, that says on it, they are a citizen of heaven. Because as it says in the book of Ephesians, we're already seated in the heavenly places. We are citizens of heaven already. And though it's not yet fully, it is already. And it is with that authority that we go forward. It's as if we have a passport from heaven itself. You have the authority, the commission to go and make disciples of all nations. No one is above it, but no one's also below it. Paul preached here to a king and to a governor, and later he'll convert even some of Caesar's own household. But we know that there's a great number of other people here, and we know that the gospel seems to spread among the poor faster than it spreads among the rich. Jesus himself even saying, it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to come into the kingdom. But the disciples said, how is this possible then? How can anyone be saved? And Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Because it's God that saves. But for some reason, we as believers, we fall into a habit sometimes of fearing men more than we fear God. We are afraid that we don't have what it takes. We're afraid of what people will think of us if we share the gospel with them. We're afraid of what they might say, what they might do. We're afraid of not having the answers. We're afraid of messing it up for some reason. But Jesus Christ, if we are believers, he saved us. And so each one of us is an authority on this issue. 
because we have received mercy, we can declare the mercy of God. Because we have received grace, we can declare the grace of God. Because we have repented of sin, we can declare repentance of sin. No matter our present situation. Think about Paul's situation here in chapter 25. Think of, of the setting. Paul has been in prison for over two years. What kind of credibility does he carry? And think about his past. Even before that, he had a habit of wandering city to city. He didn't spend much time in any place. I think the longest stint he spent anywhere was a couple years. But he was a wanderer and he was a tent maker. It's not like this guy was uh, a, a rich man of state that went around and, and was some kind of authority recognized by people. Now, he was a Pharisee and he was influential among them at the time. But when he went to Christ, he kind of had to leave all that behind. <clears throat> so, you know, people would ask him, well, what is it you do? Well, I go around and I preach the gospel. And I strengthen the, the churches of God. It's like, what? You know, how's that go? And then you look at his reputation, you realize this guy's, this guy's despised. He's been run out of towns. He's been persecuted. He's been beaten. He's been left for dead. This guy's nothing more than a vagrant that goes around causing problems everywhere he goes. But yet, here he stands before a king and a governor and all these others, and he declares the gospel. How much more should we and I know we all have difficulties in our lives. Are we persecuted for our faith? Can we preach the gospel from that point of persecution? Yes, we can. Are we experiencing disruptions in our own lives? Are we having problems with our kids? Are we having problems with our marriage? You know, are things falling apart in our household? Maybe they are. Can we still preach the gospel? Well, yes, we can. Because the word of God, the truth of God, is still always the word and the truth, no matter what. Our present situation is all the more testimony of the mercy and grace of God. Now, it doesn't mean we can't be trying our best to live the Christian life. In fact, if we're not, we're probably not Christian. But it means that no matter what our situation is, we have the authority and the command to go and make disciples. So do you find yourself in a situation where you're, you're in financial ruin? Are you jobless? Are you homeless? Go and preach the gospel. Do you know you, you can find homeless people that preach the gospel, that are content being homeless, a few of them, and they go and preach the gospel anyway. And when you give them something, they'll say, may God bless you and, and, and everything else. They see day to day that God is providing them what they need. They are content just to witness where they are. Of himself... Paul was nothing, but in Christ, he had everything. And that is the same as the true of us. And while in the world we may not have influence and riches and everything else, as a kingdom citizen, as a citizen of heaven, we indeed have riches beyond measure. And our credibility lies not with ourselves or our current situation, but with the word of God. A messenger sent by a higher authority is what Paul is and what we are. Higher authority than Agrippa, than Festus, 
or Caesar or modern presidents or CEOs or, or name and fill in a blank, however you will, that believers carry the greatest authority that there is. This is why then the raw material for our evangelism has to be the word of God. We deliver the word of God. The message is not about us. That's how Jesus can send such weak vessels, such vessels as Paul in these crazy situations with these wild reputations, and he can still preach the gospel. Why? Because it's the word of God that God uses with his spirit to save people, not Paul himself that saves people. And indeed, as you go out and preach, it's not about you. It's about the word of God. And it's about the power of, the, of God himself as he works through that word and does what he promised it would do. Look what it says here in the book of Isaiah concerning this. He says concerning his word, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Well, how then does this apply to us? We stand in the world. We are surrounded by both small and great. And yet sometimes we fear for whatever reason to share the gospel. But we can look at Paul's example and we can remember what the scriptures say. That we have the authority and indeed we have the command. And we have in the word of God a message that has the power to do what we cannot. As a matter of fact, God prefers it this way. When we're not so eloquent or persuasive or sharp as the world would see it, and yet we bring forth this message and people are converted, then we can look at the situation and say, that had to be God. That had to be miraculous. That had to be outside of this. And indeed, it is. And the very first time you proclaim the gospel to somebody and they repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ and their life is changed, you'll understand and you'll see, I could not have done that. That's beyond me. I could not have persuaded them into life change. I might have persuaded them that Jesus could be helpful to their lives. I might be able to persuade them that Christianity would be a good idea, but there's no way I could do what happened to them when they heard the word. And that's why proclaiming the word of God is the single most encouraging thing you can do for your Christian walk. But we have the authority, we have the command, we have the message in the word of God. And what we need to do now is we need to look around. We need to look around ourselves at all the small and great of all the nations that need the salvation of the gospel and pray to be a worker for that harvest and pray to be a part of what God is doing. And pray to have the boldness that comes with this great authority, that comes with this powerful word of God, and with the power of the Spirit of God, to proclaim him to small and great with no partiality. Let's pray about that right now. Father God, we thank you this day, and Lord, the, the messenger and the receiver of the message this day both desire very earnestly to be part of your kingdom and your kingdom's message and your kingdom's takeover of all the kingdoms of the earth. Lord, it is our earnest desire to be those who would proclaim your truth to both small and great. And Lord, we pray not only for opportunities, but we pray for the boldness and the confidence in you 
not in ourselves, but the confidence in you and the gospel message for changing hearts, that we will open our mouths and speak the truth as we're going to see our servant Paul do it in the following chapter. Lord, I pray this day that, that every time we read this passage now, we will consider the great situation that Paul was in and the great power of your word to go forth despite the circumstances. We thank you for this opportunity and your scripture, and we pray, Lord, this day that all of us be encouraged to carry forth your message in all the authority of Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And I hope that's been helpful to you. It certainly is passage was very helpful to me, and I hope you found it the same way. I want to encourage you, uh, if you're at all interested in asking any follow-up questions, in, uh, in just giving us feedback concerning the message or whatever, that you email us. You can contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. You can also find us on whitesrun.org where you'll find more sermon material, other helps, other questions and answers, and our statement of faith, which can be very helpful in searching down the scripture references. Uh, you'll also find notes to the sermons there that will contain uh, hyperlinks to all the scriptures that we've shared with you today so that you can search those out to see if they're true. Search it out for yourself and read the scriptures and see that these things are true. So I invite you to call, uh, contact us uh, any way you desire at any time. We can even help you find a church near you. So God bless you, and we will see you next time.